Welcome to episode 86 of Crack the Customer Code, a podcast all about what every customer needs, customers. I'm Jeannie Walters, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, which every business needs as well, and that's Adam Toporek. Oh, well, thank you. You're not so bad yourself, Jeannie, let me just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a, a longer and really fascinating interview to share, and I can't wait to get to it, with Dr. Adrian Boise, who's the chief experience officer at the Cleveland Clinic. But first, I think you have a prescription for our listeners, don't you, Adam? This episode was brought to you by CTS Service Solutions. Did you know that you can hire me to speak at your next conference or meeting? My keynote speeches on customer service and customer experience are designed to energize and inspire your audience and to provide actionable takeaways that teams can use to immediately deliver hero-class customer service. Whether to an audience of business leaders or frontline employees, my talks explore how we interact with customers using some of the latest research in customer experience, psychology, and neuroscience. Your audience will leave energized, enthused, and ready to take action. Jeannie, you want to rock your next event? I do. How can I do that? Where do I go? You go to keynotespeaker.rocks. That is keynotespeaker.rocks. So we're jumping into our interview with Dr. Boise. I wanted to give you a little bit of background. I met Dr. Boise at the Next Generation Patient Experience Conference, where we both spoke a few years ago in wherever it was, San Diego? San Diego. <laughs> Who can keep track anymore? You're speaking everywhere, Jandy. I believe I heard a rumor that somebody got a standing ovation for that presentation. Oh, did you? Yes. <laughs> yes, that was, that, was, uh, that was a really cool moment. Well, um, you know, I, I love, one of the things I love about this conversation and what I love about this topic is we've been talking about patient experience and I like that you're getting out the, the intersection between patient experience and customer experience. And I like that, you know, you're getting out there talking about that to people in that industry. So how was well, that? How was you. that experience for you? It was great. It was great. And you know, I'm such a dork that uh, I was the last speaker of the day and I saw somebody get up out of their chair when I finished up and I thought, Oh, he's just like cocktails are next. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I made it all the way to the end, like where the stairs are. And one of the conference organizers kind of put up her hand and I was like, Oh, this is happening. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a really cool moment. And I felt like they were, they were willing to hear it, which was really cool. A lot of people doing this really important work around patient experience and trying to understand the humanity of medicine uh, and what that experience is like for the the people involved. So I was honored to be there, and it was really a cool thing. But w- you know, Dr. Boise spoke and really, really impressed me because her background is super impressive. But then, when in this role at the Cleveland Clinic, she's really thinking through things that a lot of physicians, I dare say, don't think about. And we hear that in the interview, even where she admits, like, we're looking at this right now. We're trying to figure it out. And she's really expanding what the office is doing. Um, and the clinic was one of the first, if not the first, to have a C-suite executive to oversee its patient experience efforts. And so since their launch, that office has morphed into a $9.2 million operation with more than 100 employees. I'd say that's dedication to patient experience. Amazing. That is so incredible. It really is. It really is. And, you know, it's really a critical topic right now. So let's get into the interview. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Boise. Uh, Adrian Boise, MDMA, is Chief Experience Officer of Clinic 
Cleveland Clinic Health System and a staff neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis, my old job. <laughs> In this role, Dr. Boise leads the Office of Patient Experience and its initiatives to address and improve every aspect of a patient's encounter with the Cleveland Clinic Health System, all the way from their physical comfort to their educational, emotional, and spiritual needs. Dr. Boise chairs the Empathy and Innovation Summit, the largest independent summit of patient experience in the world. She also guided the development of patient advisory councils across Cleveland Clinic Health System and currently serves as editor-in-chief of the Journal of Patient Experience. Welcome, Dr. Boise. Well, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you here, Dr. Boise. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thanks for having me. Well, and I was explaining to Adam how I had heard a little bit about your background, and then I dug into it a little bit, and it's really interesting, partially because it's not just, I mean, you are a neurologist, so let's just start there. That's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and But you also have a lot of background in bioethics and specifically communication in healthcare. And one of the things that I picked up on when I was looking at your background was your focus on words in the physician-patient relationship. Hmm. So I was wondering if we could start the discussion, if you could expand a little on your idea of therapeutic mislabeling versus truth-telling in that relationship. <laughs> what else did you learn about me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't share everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, really my, my interest around language uh, started several years ago when I was asked at the time by the chief experience officer and the chief of staff here at the Cleveland Clinic to develop a communication skills program for practicing clinicians. And I was really nervous about that <laughs> because I thought <laughs> I thought teaching communication skills to people who are very talented and experienced and think they do it really well already um, wouldn't be an easy job. Mm -hmm. And when I spent a little bit more time thinking about it more deeply, I thought about some of my own practice and I had reflected on this experience of patients coming to me who uh, I didn't know very well because I had inherited their practice. And I, some of them had been looking for an answer, I think, or a word that would encapsulate some of the symptoms they were experiencing. And some patients came having a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And when I spent a little time with them, I realized they didn't have multiple sclerosis. Oh, wow. And, and yet, you know, when someone gives you a label, um, particularly a medical label, uh, that seems to encapsulate your suffering or your symptoms that seem to be very therapeutic for people. It hmm. decreased their anxiety. They felt validated. And it really got me thinking around the power of words. And you may look at that from the outside and think that having a label for something that doesn't quite fit just isn't right. And that's kind of how I looked at it at the beginning. But as I thought about it some more, you can understand why people would give a label if they thought it would really help a patient, at least in the short term, feel validated and seen. And yet at the same time, how do you navigate those really difficult conversations? Um, all hinged on the words that we choose. And they have a powerful impact on the person at the other end. 
Well, that's that's really telling, I think. And it reminds me actually of how, you know, there's there are all these uh, new technologies coming out where you can send in a little bit of your saliva and get all of your DNA results and they tell you kind of all about where your families came from. Mm -hmm. And one of the scientists who created that, he was so jazzed about it and he started sharing with his inner circle and he realized that it wasn't really about the science That's right. um, and that some people really got upset because they had been told, you know, we throw around these terms in our families, like you're 85% Irish, you know, <laughs> like, and no, you're actually only 12% Irish. Like what yeah. does that do to your identity? And so he, he realized that they really had to change how they were communicating this and help people recognize that it's just, it's just something of, part of who you are, but the way you want to embrace it and the way you want to identify, that's up to you. And so I, I, it reminds me of that struggle between kind of science and communication and how it's not just, it's not just words, it's not just data. It really is about how do we help somebody through that process in a way that is truly communicating what will be most helpful for them in that moment. That's right. I, I think you're raising a really interesting point, two things that we've thought a lot about. One is, you know, you're, and I thought about this with the patients at times, meaning if they had gotten the label of multiple sclerosis, I used to walk into the room and, and it wasn't appropriately applied. So what I would call therapeutic mislabeling, not misdiagnosis, but mislabeling. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you went into the room to talk to those patients and then you tried to remove the label, you know, I used to walk in and say, well, you know, it's very nice to meet you. Tell me something about yourself. The great news is you don't actually have MS. And in my mind, I thought I right had just done them a huge favor, right? right. Clar clarifying their diagnosis, maintaining my professional integrity, doing the right thing ethically. Uh, and patients were very angry with me and it wasn't, until I sat with it, that I realized, you know, you're, you're ripping really off um, part of their identity. Mm -hmm. And if they've become invested in that identity, then we need to be much more cautious about how we approach that conversation. Mm -hmm. And that became really interesting to me because I think it has applications way beyond healthcare, right? I mean, how much of my identity is wrapped up in being a doctor? Right. Mm -hmm. And if you don't call me doctor, am I offended by that or not? Well, mm -hmm. I'm not personally, but there are some who are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can see how it bleeds out into lots of other things. And I think the other point you highlighted in your story was, right, people wanted this sense of belonging and connectedness. And once you start to step on that, right, or change that, um, you can brush up against sensitivities where you didn't fully appreciate it, as I certainly learned in my own practice. So how do you address that? And what I mean by that, is we actually, a couple episodes ago, we had somebody who did uh, image consulting expert, and we talked a lot about confirmation bias of how people see you, how yeah. third parties see you. But you know, we're really talking here about confirmation bias of how we see ourselves. We, you know, yeah. once, once we have an idea of who we think we are, we look for evidence to support that and ignore the evidence that negates that. So how do you approach sort of trying to understand that about a person so you know what words to use? Do you ask more questions? Uh, do you integrate that into the process at all? Yeah. So we, you know, we've 
embarked on training for all of our clinicians here. Um, we've probably trained about 5,000 clinicians in what I call relationship-centered communication. And the relationship-centered communication, you know, we chose that word even very specifically. We can get neurotic about words here when you're talking <laughs> to a neurologist. But, you know, if you use the word for a little bit of background there, if you use the word patient-centered, right, everything today is patient-centered, patient-centered this, patient-centered that. Um, and it can often serve as a disconnect for clinicians who are working very hard to care for patients because it, by default, it can obviate, right, or sort of push to the side the clinician. And we became really interested in this idea that we wanted relationship-centered conversation, meaning that both people had value right? In that conversation, I have expertise in neurology, but you certainly have expertise in your own body. And one is not smarter or brighter or better than the other, right? We will achieve mm -hmm. greatness by leveraging both of our strengths and perspectives. And you're using the word, um, uh, sort of the bias or the way you see the world. And I use the word lens, right? So if you have a lens, right, that's your label. That's how you are sort of sifting through information to fit with your lens, then you're right. You'll come to a similar conclusion every time. And so in relationship-centered communication, the way that we teach it or facilitate it is this idea that you don't know that other person and they are an expert in their own being and body. And one of the greatest things you could do rather than necessarily, of course, we expect you to come to the right diagnosis. And of course, we expect you to deliver safe, high quality care. But one of the greatest things you can do in some cases like this are to get to know that human at the other side. And if you were doing that, if you were crafting your language to do that, what would that simply sound like, right? So instead of saying, where does your pain radiate? How long have you had numbness in your left side? Uh, does it go to your right foot or have you been weak because of it? You know, instead of asking those or in addition to asking those, what about questions like, well, you've been living with this for a long time. Tell me what your ideas are about it. Or um, how do you think this has been impacting your day-to-day -day functioning? What are you worried most about? And what are you expecting I can help you with? What are your hopes for how I can help guide you through this process. Um, those are the types of questions that I think really encompass what I call empathic curiosity. So it's simply staying curious because you don't know the other mm -hmm. person. Um, mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes we either think that the other person isn't bringing meaningful knowledge to the table or that that doesn't help us, right, sort of get anything done, quote unquote. Uh, and I, I would argue the exact opposite, that if we form relationships really rested in meaning and shared purpose um, that value both perspectives, we'll be much more successful and, in fact, therapeutic to both parties. Well, and I think, you know, I, uh, I wrote a blog about being a parent and bringing my two children with me because I couldn't leave one of them mm -hmm. uh, to a regular doctor's office and our experience of waiting. And one of the things that struck me was how it's so complicated when you have the parent-child relationship or when you have an older, you know, parent relationship who's got an adult child kind of as their caretaker, any of those situations, 
because there's this whole other layer of complexity with communication and with the overall experience with that visit to the physician. And you shared a great story on stage where you were talking about getting your son to a doctor and all the things that you had to do to make that happen as a parent. Mm -hmm. And I could relate to that so much because you say, okay, I've got the appointment on the schedule. What does that mean? Well, that means I have to get transportation there. That means I might have to take him out of school. That means I've got to get childcare. That, you know, all of these things. And so I loved your reaction as a parent and as a <laughs> physician because you said you got your son there and you were very anxious getting him there on time and everything. And then the doctor walked in and said, ah, he's fine. <laughs> and I think you said, I wanted the doctor to use more words. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, like, what are some of the ways we can help physicians who are in these moment by moment situations that they, they have to keep moving? They've got a lot to do, all of these things. How can we help them understand those types of moments as well? And also the, the relationship between not just the physician, but maybe also the parent or the caretaker or the other people who are involved in that experience with them? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think there are multiple answers to it. I mean, one is, is we're talking about lenses, right? I mean, I think a lot of times um, we forget that our lens isn't the world's lens right? That as a, on the physician side, I could imagine that that physician, right, was just running through his schedule and hopping room to room, and maybe he missed lunch and hasn't gotten to go to the bathroom yet. You know, and he's working hard, um, trying to be present for every patient that he's in the room with, right? And dedicate attention to where it's needed and maybe less so in places where it's not needed. And so I can see it through his lens of efficiency and quality. And that's all a good thing. And yet, you know, when you're the parent or the loved one, your lens is razor focused on the safety of your loved one, but it's a loved one, right? Mm -hmm. There's your heart is in that lens and they don't have that in their lens necessarily. And I think maybe that's it, right? Maybe, maybe it is putting the heart in both lenses, and sometimes I think that responsibility is shared, um, mm -hmm. meaning, of course, there are things patients could say, right? I could have said to that doctor, well, you're going to need to give me a minute, right? Because I just have gone through tremendous feats of magic um, to get my family members here on time today. And I feel like I'm going to need a little bit more time to understand why you think this mm -hmm. isn't a big deal, <laughs> Right. right. I, I, could, I could have said that. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of times patients don't say that, right? We just mm -hmm. somehow accept the knowledge that's been bequeathed to us and then move on. Uh, and I don't think we necessarily have to do that. And I'm putting myself in that pile too. Um, I think we have the power to say, well, you know, just give me a minute. Can we back up a second and talk about X? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I would encourage people to do that. The flip side is, on the clinician side, I think we need to broaden our lens, right? That um, not just bring our heart to it and be empathically curious about the person in front of us. Yes, maybe in that situation, they were worried that his head was getting too flat because he was lying on his head all the time as a baby. Um, but as a mom, of course, what's running through my mind is, is it permanently deformed? Is this going to impact his brain functioning? You know, is mm -hmm. he going to get made fun of at school? You know? Sure. Of and, course. And, and these are the life questions that people really think about. And so 
I think through training like this and also just sort of nudging clinicians at times to stay empathically curious because their hearts are there. I think at times the system creates an environment where their heart doesn't shine through. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to encourage it and foster it just like we would with anything else we're hoping to really grow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting for when you talk about healthcare, it's such a unique industry. And so, you know, because healthcare is the thing that affects us all, we sort of place it differently. We don't look at getting our healthcare the same way we look at getting a car, right? I mean, it's our health, it's our lively, you know. Well, you uh, want a car. <laughs> right, you exactly. You want to be coming to get your heart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Good point. And it's a great point. And, you know, there's always been this element. I, I don't mean any disrespect uh, to the, you know, medical community for this, but I think there's always been a strain to the people who aren't in the medical community of a little bit of a God complex and a disconnect. We know what's best. And everything you're talking about is so much of a bridge between, you know, that traditional gap. Do you think there, uh, well, I should say, do you see any attention to this at the medical school level? Are you having to train it when they get to you or are people, or is the industry, seeing this as a whole. I know you're a, you know, Cleveland Clinic's a leader in patient experience and all that. So what are you seeing? Well, you're, you're asking a question that I've thought a lot about, meaning when I was asked to work with this team to build communication skills training, it was for practicing clinicians, right? And that really was a brand new thing. I mean, right? We had never worked with experienced clinicians on communication skills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and when you think about it, it's really kind of funny, right? Because here you are, these people have graduated, they've gone through residency or fellowship, and then we're somehow expecting that they have all the skills they need r- r- with respect to communication to go out into the world. And not only that, but they're never going to give, we're never going to give them feedback on them Right. And we're going to expect that they're humans at the same time. They're content experts checking all the right check boxes for safety, quality, you know, and value based care. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's not quite fair. Right. I mean, the system has kind of bred a way of um, I would go so far as to maybe even say ensuring that that part is taken out. Right. So so think about it. We've. um Med schools, in fact, are making a lot of changes and have made a tremendous amount of changes over the past couple of years in their curriculum. But that's, again, just my opinion, that's the time in their life, med school, right? You've just decided you're going to go into medicine. You care deeply about patients. It's altruistically centered, right, for the most part. Um, you're, You're optimistic about the future, You're very worried about mastering the content of medicine, right? Uh, Learning this whole new weird language that Mm -hmm. we use. And it's that time that we choose to really focus on communication skills and humanism. And my experience in medical school was that um, that was considered a softer skill in medical school and that the other stuff was much, the content was much more um, important to get right, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's minutiae there. And we're graded on the minutia. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and then you go through medical school, that's reinforced. And then, and you have no primary responsibility for patients, right? Uh, and it's not until you get into residency where you have increasing responsibility for patients that the challenges really start to come your way, 
right? That you, as you gain more independence, you're responsible for having these really difficult conversations. And I would venture there's few mechanisms to actually help residents through that, mm-hmm. in my perspective. Mm-hmm. And then as a staff, forget about it. You know, there's <laughs> never those conversations. We don't have M&Ms about sort of how that conversation went or whether or not we could have supported you better or whether we have communication skills programs or if you've been here 20 years, we're just going to check in on you and make sure that your quality of communication is at a standard we expect. Mm-hmm. And so it's really unheard of. Um, so yes, I think it's great you train all that stuff in medical school, but I would offer that the real challenge is to reinforce it in a time where we're really talking about hidden curriculums, right? Where <laughs> you're saying humanism is important, but we often don't treat residents as humans. <laughs> and so, so you, right. So you lose it. Um, mm-hmm. and you, you lose that intrinsic desire and motivation of people whose heart is in the right place and they've got fire for it. We don't fan the fire. I think we put it out. And so the training has to be sort of tiered and appropriate for where you are as a med student to where you are as a resident, to where you are as a staff physician. And I think for the first time ever, we've been able to connect those curriculums um, in some of the work that we've done. And I feel like that's a really important thread. So it can change as people mature and you're titrating it or tweaking the curriculum to exactly what people really face at those Mm -hmm. different career stages. Well, I love what you're doing and what so many other organizations are starting to to follow that lead. And, you know, when we uh, met at Next Generation Patient Experience, I actually spoke the following day. And what I did was share my patient experience because my family and I were involved in a serious car accident a little over a year ago. And we had vastly different experiences in the ER based on the doctors we had. Mm. And then it just kept going from there. I, I was inpatient for a couple of days and everything else. And one of the things that struck me as I was kind of observing was that a lot of people were absolutely following the process and the rules by the letter. I mean, they were on top of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet there were times I still didn't feel cared for. Mm-hmm. And I think that connection between the why and the what um, and the how, that's really where those those experiences can really matter because you could do the same thing, but slightly different ways. And somebody can walk out and feel like, wow, that's, I feel cared for and heard. And another person can walk out and think, eh, I'm never going back to that doctor. And Mm -hmm. they might do the same exact thing. So I love everything you're doing. And I think it's really important work. Um, and I'm, I'm personally very appreciative of it because my experience. So, Thank you so much for sharing this with our audience and uh, please, you know, keep it up because I think it's, it's really, it's making a difference not only at the Cleveland Clinic, but also throughout the medical community. And I, I like seeing that others are following the clinic's lead and, and giving people roles like the one you have so that we can work on these things that maybe aren't taught so well throughout uh, the traditional education of everything. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me and sharing a bit of your story. I think the dream really is that I don't have to hear another story like yours, right? That mm-hmm. that we're bringing the heart to the work and we see you as a human every time, every encounter. So thanks again. Thank you. That's, we really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. 
We hope you enjoyed episode 86 of Crack the Customer Code, and we know you're all going to be viewing your doctors and nurses through a whole different lens now. <laughs> we hope so. Oh, that, that, was a, that was such great information, I'm, and I'm so happy to see this industry heading that direction. So this was a really yeah. cool episode. So if you want to learn more about this episode, you can go to the show notes for this and, of course, all of our episodes at crackthecustomercode.com. I'm Jeannie Walters. Sign up for customer experience webinars at cxwebinar.com and learn more about me at 360connects.com. And I'm Adam Tapork. You can connect with me and find out more about our customer service workshops and training at customersthatstick.com. Until next time, take care of yourself. And take care of your customers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.